This show is brought to you in part by the University of Advancing Technology. UAT is a unique technology-infused private college that was founded by a geek for other geeks. Our mission is to educate students in the fields of advancing technology to become innovators of the future. UAT's campus culture is devoted to continually nurturing a thriving geek community where everyone's personal lives and professional aspirations revolve around technology. The beginning of the 21st century is an exciting time to be in the technology community. Current subjects of ongoing research and scholarship at UAT include robotics and embedded systems, artificial life programming, information and network security, game development, and other areas of advanced technology. Check them out on the web at www.uat.edu. Shoutcast streaming provided by Versus the World Productions, www.vtwproductions.com. Hi, folks. This is the Emperor. I'm here to remind you to listen to the Emperor's Court every Saturday from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern right here at vtwproductions.com. That's the Emperor's Court, your three-hour break from Internet porn. I have not been to a Comic-Con before, and, and this is a great place to start. Now all I need is find some glasses. And uh, that's going to be a problem. Well, I know most of what I was going to say. Huh? You know, I want to say from now on, this is where I'm going to carry my glasses all the time. And I'm always going to wear this badge. I'm never going to wash and I'm never going to take it off. <laughs> Thank you so much. Who knows where they fell from. So I was looking out the window of my toddler daughter's bedroom. This is the same toddler who just two weeks ago graduated from George Washington University. Thank you. I remember it very clearly because I just put up some goofy wallpaper in the room. It's like this zigzaggy, I thought kind of sci-fi kind of stuff. And my wife said, wow, that's really geeky. <laughs> now, this was 20 years ago, so I took offense. Today, when she says something's geeky, I say, why, thank you, dear. <laughs> so I remember it very clearly. I remember this day, because I was standing in my toddler daughter's bedroom, trying not to be a geek, even though the wallpaper said otherwise. And um, I needed to come up with an idea to pitch Star Trek The Next Generation. And I looked out the window, and I saw a probe. I, I mean, I really did. I saw a probe. Well, I, I should say I saw something that was floating in the sky designed to send me a message. <laughs> and honest to God, that's what it was. Now, this is really dating this whole project because Fujifilm, what's that? I'm not sure film exists, and I don't think Fuji does, but they used to send these blimps over Los Angeles, and at night they had like all sorts of writing on them and stuff and lights. So in my mind, this is what I pictured this blimp was saying. <laughs> I really did. I thought, wow, this is so interesting that it's just like this is kind of a thing designed to put some kind of idea in my mind. So now let's rewind a couple of years. When I was in seventh grade, I announced to the world that I wanted to be a television writer. And it didn't happen right away. 
I was a reporter at several small newspapers, then I was at the Los Angeles Times, and I covered the television industry, and I got to know the guys at NBC, and they hired me to be an executive, I should say junior executive, which still was a form of suit and uh, a bad fit, because I, I knew in my heart I was really a t-shirt. So that, that, that was not good, but it was a good learning experience, and some very interesting things happened while I was a junior executive in an ill-fitting suit, Ill suit at NBC. One of the writers I helped get his start is a writer named Joe Minoski. Does that name mean anything from next generation people? Joe was on a show called Hunter. Does that name mean anything? <laughs> Fred Dreyer, remember that show? So Joe was on that show, and I had helped him get his start on that. And um, then some guy, uh, also a journalist, but in this case a broadcast journalist, came into the office, uh, Joe's office, not mine, and, and had some kind of idea for a TV show, and he was partnered with some guy, and it was all pretty crazy. And Joe was assigned to work with him, and that person was Michael Piller. So let's come back to me standing in the bedroom, and this is a story also about karma a little bit, because uh, Michael repaid Joe's kindness by bringing him on to Star Trek Next Generation, and Joe repaid my kindness by helping me in pitching. Now, I'm sure you might know, you might have read, Star Trek Next Generation was one of the few shows that almost anybody could pitch to. I mean, not almost anybody, but you didn't have to come in through an agent, you didn't have to necessarily be an established writer. What most people didn't know is that as soon as you walked out of the room, if you were a non-established person, they just made merciless fun of you. <laughs> and the way I know this is, because the first time I'm in there, I think, hey, I'm gonna give them these great sci-fi stories, and the first story I pitch is, what about a planet where everybody tells the truth all the time? I thought, oh, that would be so cool. And uh, I had to use the men's room, and I took a wrong turn. I ended up walking by the, uh, the writer's room. Are you going to stay in there filming the entire thing? Because that's, 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 that's a little distracting, thanks. So I'm, I'm walking. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. So I'm walking by the writer's room, and I see a bulletin board. And on it, it says, Pitching Hall of Shame. And then underneath is all the pitches we really hate that we hear over and over again. Next line, planet where everybody tells the truth. <laughs> so you had to work very hard to, to uh, get through to them. And this is also a story about perseverance because as you know from the episode, obviously something went right at some point. So, um, they had heard stories like the planet where everybody tells the truth. They had heard all sorts of stories. They had heard about the city that sings. There were all sorts of things that writers like myself thought were so clever and came and didn't realize that everybody was pitching some version of that. But they had never heard the inner light. They had never heard a story like that. I looked at that blimp in the sky. And I thought there's some pretty futuristic stuff here to deal with. I mean, let's project ahead. Let's take a blimp that's just a floating object designed to put some kind of ideas in our head and get us to buy something. And I thought, what's the really futuro version of that? And some kind of mind link. It's some kind of probe that some civilization in the Star Trek universe has, and they send it out, and it goes ship to ship and locks on people's brains and gets them to buy some kind of special rocket fuel. I mean, I didn't know at the time. I just thought this was, this was the starting point, that it was a commercial thing. And part of this came from my own thinking a little, a little subversive, but also trying to think a little differently. And I think that's 
part of the reason the inner light was so successful is because I was an outsider. And de facto, as an outsider, I cannot give them all the ideas they're going to think of that they're doing over and over again. Or I'm not even putting down what they're doing, but I'm saying I had to come in and, and, and really get over that hurdle of the stuff they've already th thought of. So I have to come in with something that's different. And as you know, Inner Light is quite a different episode. So being a little subversive, my thinking was, well, the show is so earnest. And I know that's part of what people like about it. In a panel I was just on, somebody mentioned how Gene Roddenberry said this takes place in a time when people are more civilized and there's not as much belligerence and all that, which was a problem for the show to get over. But thinking about that, that struck me as there were a lot of things very earnest about it. I thought, well, what about the kind of day-to-day -day stuff? Like, like, why don't they ever pass a really annoying cruise ship with like passengers who are throwing shit out into space? <laughs> You know, you never see that. Everything's always kind of like, you know, really just very, like, nicely pressed. Nobody ever had a wrinkled suit on, space suit on. Um, I thought, why doesn't Jordy ever come and say, and somebody says, what's wrong, Jordy? He says, damn it, I just spent two hours on the phone with my bank, and the last check from Starfleet bounced. <laughs> you know, you just never saw that happen. And so part of what I was trying to do was, was not really consciously, but come in and, and try and just look at a, a different way of looking at things. I was also motivated, or inspired, I should say, by something I had just seen, and, and forgive me if this goes a little off base from Star Trek, but I'd just been in London and seen the Tom Stoppard play Artist Descending a Staircase. And Artist Descending a Staircase is about two friends who are in their apartment, they hear a clump, and they go, and their friend is at the bottom of the stairs dead. And they figure, well, we got to find out who killed him, who pushed him, what happened. And the end of the play is there's a fly that's been buzzing around. They realize he swatted a fly and fell down the stairs. To me, what that meant is it's like, again, taking something that's so monumental and then shrinking it down to something that's just sort of every day. I was really intrigued with this concept. And that goes back to the idea of the probe being some kind of um, commercial thing, which which is kind of out of, the, out of the ordinary for the next generation universe, but I certainly thought everybody who watches it could relate to the commercials, because if you wait about five minutes, you're going to see one on TV. <laughs> so here's what I kind of developed. It's a mind link. It was Picard and Riker and Troy. They didn't know it was a mind link. It's almost like getting stuck inside a video game. And they think they're on another planet. Now, there's some problems with that, which is that the jeopardy has to seem real. But I thought I was onto something. I really wanted to persist with this idea of a life that seems real inside their head. Now, here's the cool thing looking back at it. This is before The Matrix. It's long before Inception. And I hadn't read enough Philip K. Dick to realize I wasn't being original. But looking back on it, I mean, I thought that was pretty cool to, to get into the whole idea that we cannot distinguish between what's in our mind and what's real? Maybe this is all a dream right now. If it was a really good dream, you probably wouldn't know. So that, that's, that was the basis for this kind of thing, the underpinnings of the inner light. So I get in front of Michael Piller and Joe Minoski and Jerry Taylor and a baby writer named Ron Moore, and I pitch this thing. And to Michael Piller's credit, he said, <laughs> you've got to be kidding. He basically said, no way. I say to his credit because the Writers Guild has a rule that you cannot ask a freelancer to do free work. So if you hear an idea you don't like and you're not sure if you're going to like it enough, I, I, let me change that. If you hear an idea you kind of like, 
but you're not sure if it's going to be right for you. You can't say to the writer, which the writer would love you to say, go work on this. Go make it better. Here, fix X, Y, and Z. Come back, and maybe we'll do it. You're not allowed to ask that. So what Michael did, which was by the book, he said, I have to say no. But if you should happen to come back and pitch this again and fix a couple things, that would be okay. So I knew I kind of had him hooked. I did come back. I came back five times. <laughs> you look at the episode now and you say, wow, five times to get that? Starship Mine only took three times because on the third try, Michael actually said, well, it's die hard on the ship. I know we got to do it, so let's do it. <laughs> this took five times. At one point, I had some kind of weird, like, three-way triangle and a wedding ceremony, and you will know better than I do, but was there a character, Dax, who was on Deep Space Nine, but, but before that was on Next Generation for a bit? Who? who? Oh, right. oh, right. No. What's a trill? <laughs> okay, there was somebody. Am I right, though? There was some woman, female character, who was on Next Generation, and then... No, it wasn't, wasn't her. Whatever it was, this space chick was having a thing with both uh, Riker and Picard, I guess, according to my pitch. Oh, I thought that was me. Okay, I don't... So, but I knew I was taking a leap in the right direction, delving into the kind of personal drama that you couldn't normally do. Just the fact that I was talking about romance and that kind of stuff and interrelationship stuff, it, it seemed kind of fresh to them. And I was also dipping my toe into the waters of the road not taken, which is what the episode turned out to be. Meanwhile, Joe Manoski says to me, hey, I think let's make Picard an iron weaver. And I said, okay, Joe, what's an iron weaver? He said, I don't know. He said, but it sounds kind of rural and sophisticated at the same time. Now, here's the funny thing. Damned if that isn't kind of the, the civilization they live in in inner light, Joe's little idea like that stuck all the way to the end just from him saying that. I think it turned out very cool. But I haven't been given the go-ahead on the episode yet. On pitch number five, it all came together. All this talk of a wedding got Michael Piller to say what I had thought and was afraid to ever say. He said, what if it's Picard who gets married? What if we make that the alternate life? The kind of thing he never could have had on the ship. And man, I just thought that was the greatest thing I ever heard. And we knew then we were going to go forward with this episode. So the next time I came back, I had the planet that went supernova as the reason to send out this probe. And I also had an idea about finding one man good and true. Now, for anybody out there, when you watch the episode, did it make you think of any other kind of comic book thing, the whole idea of searching and finding the one guy that would be right for this? Anybody? You mean that guy? <laughs> that's, that's where it was coming from, from my childhood of reading way too many comic books. And I thought it was very cool if this probe had a purpose in finding Picard. So I'm going forward with the episode. Now, Michael had kind of laughed a little bit about the episode. He laughed about the tree of life, and he laughed about the flute. He just thought that the flute, it was like, um, it was like Picard in junior high school got there late on the first day of marching band, and they had given out the drums and trumpet. And they said, 
you're going to play the flute. I think he was singing like Herbie Mann playing the flute or something. I don't know what it was. But I have to say, my wife had the same reaction. She said, well, is really the flute the best thing? I said, you know, I don't think they have electric guitars and saxophones on Catan. And she said, well, how do you know? I said, because I'm going to decide that. I'm going to make it up. <laughs> I, I, just, I just don't see having Picard playing, seeing Picard play electric guitar. But you needed something. We need, I knew we needed something for him to bring back from that life to, the new, to his old life. And um, uh, I started wondering if maybe she had a point. So what I did is I went out and bought what's called a Clark Sweet Tone Penny Whistle in the key of D. Now, the thing about a penny whistle is that's what sailors play, you know, not current day, although maybe they do. Is anybody in the Navy, do they still pipe people on board, or is that from me reading Horatio Hornblower? In Horatio Hornblower and Master Commander, they're always piping people on board, and they use a penny whistle. So I went out, out and got a penny whistle. And um, I actually composed a little flute tune for it, and my idea was that um, in the wedding of Maribor, what would happen before that is Aileen would show Picard the flute and say, like, hey, Mr. Cranky Pants, you know, go play your flute and leave me alone. He looks at this thing and says, what? He says, I don't, I don't play the flute. And so you start out that way, but by the time Maribor gets married, which you never see in the show, this was just my idea, that it's going to start out and you're going to hear this song playing. Let's see if I can find that. Well, here's the flute. This is what I wrote at the time. I just did it on a little penny whistle. And my idea was that I was going to call Pillar, because I didn't have a meeting to come in, and I was going to convince him about this. So I call. Let me see if I do this. And I get his assistant on the phone. And I say, uh, yeah, can I, can I talk to Michael? She says, what for? And I said, well, I, I got to play him something. She says, OK. And I wait, and I wait. And Michael gets on. He says, oh, hi, Morgan. And I start playing the penny whistle. And I play this whole thing, and there's just silence at the end. There's silence on the other end. And I think, wow, he's really in awe. <laughs> and, and I'm saying, hello, hello. And his assistant picks up. She says, oh, Morgan, are you still there? I said, yeah. She said, oh, Michael had to go take another call. So it worked out great. He never heard me playing the penny whistle. <laughs> And the next time I went in, he said, uh, I've changed my mind, we're going to do the flute. But meanwhile, I'm going to play you the rest of this, because I've, I've redone it now. This is, originally, it was just a little tune. I didn't actually play it on the phone. I had played it and recorded it on a little, a little cassette recorder from back <laughs> in the day. But I just redid it, and I'm going to put it on the site that you'll see the flutes I have that it, it sends you to. So I'm just going to, ah, that's the wrong thing. <laughs> I spoiled a punchline from later. <laughs> Do you mind if I just play the flute piece real quick? No. All right. I was supposed to be talking over this, but my timing's all wrong.
that was my idea for the for Maribor's wedding march. It didn't it didn't sound like that 20 years ago, but you didn't have like synth stuff you could do on a laptop, and today you do. So um, you know, I feel bad that Michael never heard that. But at the time, it worked for me because I came back and he said, "Okay, we're going to do the flute." So what I'd like to do now is uh, play the episode uh, and just jump to various points in it and kind of do a little commentary on it, and then I'll take some questions. Okay, so this is, I didn't mean this to happen, but this is what comes up on the DVD. This is Jay Chataway's flute song, which you've probably heard has been done by orchestras all over the world. It's really terrific. Yeah, but enough of that. <laughs> Captain's log, stardate 45944.1. Can we dim a little Following a magnetic wave survey of the Parvenium system, we have detected an object which we cannot immediately identify. Magnify. Mr. Data? It appears to be a probe of some kind, but there is no Starfleet record of this shape or design. Is it scanning us? No, sir, but it has assumed a relative position and is holding course with us. The probe is composed of parisium and talganite, a ceramic alloy. Not a very sophisticated technology. Sir, I'm detecting a low-level nucleonic beam coming from the probe. Shields up! Stand by, phasers! The beam is scanning the shield's perimeter. The probe is emitting an unusual particle stream. Sir, the beam is penetrating our shields. Increase speed to... Captain. It's all right. Captain, I've got you. Okay, question. How many people out there can remember a time seeing this episode for the first time and not knowing the story? Did anybody see it and not know what the story was? Okay, great. So I want to ask you, the first time you saw this, did you think that Picard got transported somewhere else? Okay, cool. <laughs> I've never known if it worked like that because obviously when you're writing it, you know where it's going to go. So I, I've always wondered about that. So thanks, good answer. Okay, let me try and do that. How are you feeling? Cayman? That's Max. Can you answer me? What is this place? Oh, you're still... But anyway, we're going to fast forward a little now. <laughs> oh, I meant to jump past that. Sorry, you have to see the whole titles. So you know what happens, he wakes up, he doesn't believe her, he says, where am I, where's the Enterprise, all this. I want to get to another point, since we don't have time to play the whole thing, I want to get to some key points I want to play. Thank you. This sapling is planted as an affirmation of life in defiance of the drought 
and with expectations of long life. Whatever comes, we will keep it alive as a symbol of our survival. Cayman, you're back on your feet. How do you feel, my friend? You're in charge here. In charge? I want to be returned to my ship immediately. What ship is that? Please. Just tell me, what is this place? Where am I? The fever. It's taken your memory. It was not initially part of the plan to pull off what I call the switcheroo. I mean, Picard uh, started to believe that this life on Catan was real, but we had never thought about till we really got into the script, till I started writing the draft of the script, is what does he think the whole Enterprise thing was? So it came out, I think it's pretty interesting the way it comes out, that, that naturally evolved something where they would tell him that the real life was a dream. So it's a two-part thing. If you're going to be in a dream and think it's real, you have to think the reality is something else, too. It's the movie Jacob's Ladder, which is so brilliant, which is where you don't know till the end that everything we thought is real is really the dream, and everything we thought was the dream was the reality. So that's what we had to do with Picard, is, is give a rationale for him to say, and, you know, after 30 years, he says, well, I guess that enterprise was just a dream. So I, I thought that was interesting. There are a lot of things about this that I didn't even either remember or realize the importance of how all the pieces fit together. So now we're going to fast forward again. It's like a warp drive. <laughs> that must be it. Perhaps you can help me. Anything, my friend. My name is Cayman. Yes. You are? Atai. Trying. Council leader, Atai. Ah. So you know what happens, he's still not convinced, he's going to go explore, he eventually comes home. This is a back lot somewhere in Burbank. <laughs> She's making the cackalack stew. Wow, it really tastes good. Well, of course it does, he hasn't eaten in so long. And uh, you know, they're, they're sophisticated enough to do probes, but she still likes home cooking. I really like that about Elite. She's So he's still not getting used to the idea, but he figures he's got to go along with it. They're married. Three years ago. The happiest day of my life was the day we got married. Elena's a great wife. And what do I do here in Russia? You're the best iron weaver in the community, at least I think so. That's the part I was going for. So Joe Minoski's little line made in the script. Now the funny thing is if you look at my writer's draft, which I have down in the exhibition hall, I, I, I didn't listen to Joe. I made him a teacher and then I learned my lesson. Joe was on staff and he was a really smart guy and I should have listened because it went back to iron weaver as well it should. Um, and you'll notice 
We never see Picard weaving any iron. <laughs> never. You don't even see iron. You don't see a machine to weave. You don't see... It just sounded good, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm making a joke out of it, but here's the reality of it. It was just a good idea. It sounded good, and a lot of the stuff, especially in this episode, I said this in an earlier panel, emotions trump logic. You know, if something just feels right, and, and I got to say, Iron Weaver was one of those things. I thought it was very cool. You prefer playing the flute, of course. The flute? We're coming up to a big, big yes. moment. It's not the flute. When did I learn to play this? Never. I'm afraid you never did, dear. You do keep trying. See what you mean? By the way, that flute is this. It's um, because I had bought the, uh, the Clark whistle. I think the prop guys found out or something, and so they made it out of the same thing. And I have since, like, duplicated a bunch of these on my own just, I don't know, because I thought it was cool. So uh, I can't call it the Resican flute, but this is the Catan flute. $40,000, the original. If anybody's interested, I've knocked three zeros off of it down in the exhibition hall. <laughs> Soup. Okay, we're getting to the moment. Thank you for your help. Tomorrow, will you help me to send a message? Of course. Now, will you come to bed? Oh, I'll sleep here. Cayman, please come with me. I've been sick. I'll be tossing and turning. It wouldn't be fair to you. Let me be the judge of that. Okay, she leans over, and what does he see? You were wrong. Where did you get this? Came in. So, when you put it that way, it does look like he's ogling her. It really does. <laughs> but we had to find a way to pretty quickly, you know, get it going. I mean, he's got a lot of tension in his life, not knowing where he is. But for the viewer, it's okay. You have to have certain benchmarks to, to move this along. And one of those is a callback to what he remembers happening. Because now he's only been gone for, you know, in, in the Picard world, he's been gone for, you know, 10 hours or something. By the Picard world, when I refer to that, I mean on Catan. So we had to have a way to, to bring him back short and say, wow, I remember this thing. And when I wrote it, I wrote it to be, it could be a crucifix, I have to say I wrote it to be, if any, a mezuzah, okay? So I wanted it to be something that she was wearing but I wrote it to be an insignia that he had seen on the probe. It wasn't until I saw the finished version that I saw they actually made the probe in the shape of this thing, which I thought was brilliant. And also shows, you know, it takes a village to make a TV show. Some brilliant kind of uh, set designer said, well, why put an insignia on some drab-looking probe? Let's make the probe in the shape of the insignia. So that's one of the things I look back on, I can't take credit for, and I just think it's really brilliant, because you know instantly he's looking and saying, what? I, I saw that thing. So... We're just going to finish out the act. 
this is the first gift you ever gave me. Regular sick bay. The captain's hurt. Pulse and blood pressure are normal. I'm getting hyperactive fibrogenic activity. This is odd. What is it? There's no evidence of any injury or trauma. Vital signs are normal. So here's what I think is very interesting and kind of cool, and, and it wasn't necessarily by design, but this is a people who still like, uh, they have the tree of life and they're an agrarian community, but they have fibrogenic activity coming from the probe into his brain. And I, that's pretty sophisticated. And no one ever questioned it. No one in the writing or the making of it or any fan I've ever spoken to says, well, how do those farmers make the probe? No one ever asked that. And the takeaway for me is what I said earlier, it's like, Sometimes too much explanation is too much explanation. And the example I use is one of my favorite movies, Groundhog Day. Can you imagine if Groundhog Day, at the end, he saw the, the fortune teller who said, ha-ha, I told you this would happen. One, you know what I'm saying? There's no explanation. It was great. And I said this earlier, the emotions trump the logic. So I think this is an interesting point here, because in watching it, did anybody stop and say, how did those people make fibrogenic Whatever. Okay. All right. And what did you think when you thought that? Did you think, did it, did it, did it hurt the enjoyment of it? Did you think, oh, this is kind of odd? Yeah, it is a little odd. But it didn't hurt the enjoyment. Um, but that's the whole iron weaver thing. I can't take it. off the scale. What's going on? This probe is doing something to him. Anything yet, Data? No, sir. The particle emission is most unusual. I am unable to block it. We should destroy the probe. Phasers are armed and ready. All right, this is great. Not until we know exactly what it's... I just love that Worf is just being Worf. And I'm, I'm sure I wrote, I wrote some version of it, but it's just so predictable. And he says it, and he's so earnest about it. And nobody says, wow, you're a little barbaric. It's like, this is his job. The, the interesting thing, though, now, in hindsight, is Michael Dorn and I have become good friends. I'm working with him on a movie he wrote that I will produce if it gets made. And it's a romantic comedy that he wrote. And he is a really sweet, funny guy. And so every time I hang out with him, I think of this scene. We must destroy the probe. I always say that to him. Like, I'll just call him up and leave a message. We must destroy the probe. Agreed. Stand on phases, Mr. Worf. In the meantime, Take us out of range, Ensign. Thrusters only, 100 kph. Nice and easy. Aye, sir. Data? The probe is moving with us, sir. Holding relative position. It's connected itself to him. Like a tether. You've been dreaming about that starship of yours again, haven't you? I'm just charting the progress. Okay, so two things, you've been dreaming about the starship, so we really established and hammered into his head that at some point, if you go long enough, you're gonna think it's a dream. It feels a little inception-y to me, but this was 20 years ago, so. Um, the other thing is he's aged five years, and a lot of things I talk about when I talk about the inner light seem obvious now, because you've seen the episode, but at the time, think about it, you had to decide the rules. We spent a lot of time, me and Michael and probably Ron or whoever was in the room, 
figuring out what were going to be the rules of this episode. And one of the rules was he was only going to age once per break and only go back and forth between the Riker and the Picard worlds once per break. That might sound like I said, like, well, okay, as opposed to what? Well, as opposed to that you'd see, and I think I actually pitched this. I said, well, we could see, cut to the classic cliche, it was a really bad cliche, of snow falling, and you know it's now winter and seasons have changed, you go back to them. And Michael Piller said, that's really stupid. And he was right. <laughs> so we decided on the rule, we decided we're only going to age Picard when we're coming back to him, never in the middle of a scene. I think on a, on a very unconscious level, it helps the enjoyment of the show. You never are pulled out of it and say, oh yeah, now he's going, now he's older, because it only happens after you've been back to the ship. So I think it's one of the things that helps keep you uh, uh, engaged, if you will, into the episode. This is the cause of the sun. I give a clue to the cause of this drought. I think you're still trying to figure out where you are. Where that ship of yours is. How to get back to that life. The memory is five years old now. But it's still inside me. Was your life there so much better than this? So much more gratifying, so much more fulfilling that you cling to it with such stubbornness. Listen to what she's saying to him. Elite. Must have been extraordinary. But never in all the stories you've told me have you mentioned anyone who loved you as I do. That's a really big moment. And I have to say, I have to give credit to Peter Allen Fields. Peter basically did the production draft, which you do on... I was my first time freelancing. I did one draft, and then they bring in a producer to do the production draft. And basically, you know, he said, well, you have like 18 locations. We can't afford that, and you have all these extra characters. But he really shaped uh, and fine-tuned the romance of this. And if you look at my draft of it, I sort of held back a little because it didn't seem like the show. But seeing what he did was really key to this. And this is one of those big moments because she's hitting on what for Picard is the crux of this whole thing. He's getting stuff in this world that he didn't get back in the Enterprise. He's getting love and affection and a family and all that stuff. And this is the moment when it's kind of spelled out for him. So now he can play the flute better, which is a big deal. We know that he's, you know, getting a little accustomed to life there. And he's about to move things forward in a big way, as you know. When he just said, why don't we have kids together? But this is a little key moment coming up right about now. You know, one of the pleasures of this episode, and I think for uh, Michael Pillar and Joe Minoski and Ron Moore and Jerry Taylor is 
who were all in the room when we were kind of working on it, for them as much as the viewer, it was the ability to play this character in a way you didn't see much. You know, if you go when people talk about, you know, the Captain Kirk character, Kirk, like, every two seconds was like, how do women on your planet make love? <laughs> That was not a Shatner impersonation. That was an impersonation of Kevin Pollack doing Bill Shatner. <laughs> okay, quick aside. So I, I wrote some tech wars, and I became very friendly with, with Bill, as I call him, William Shatner. And, and I would hang out with him, and every once in a while we'd have lunch. And this was before he got super famous again from Boston Legal. So he'd, he'd call me and say, let's have lunch. And he'd want to meet at Kukuru in Studio City. So I'd walk into Kukuru, and he'd be sitting like there at the counter in a t-shirt, nobody was bothering him, and I'd go up, and I swear to God this is true, he'd say, Morgan, you must have the barbecue chicken. <laughs> Honest to God. Honest to God. He just, he really is that way. So you see what I'm getting at? It's like, uh, you know, Picard was not that kind of guy, and I think in terms of what the change-up, and I'm sure you all know episodes where he had romance and kissed and stuff, but you got to admit it was pretty rare, and to see it with this intensity was one of the joys of this episode. So now we go to... Jordy, any progress identifying the probe? Maybe. ...that would disrupt the signal. Doctor. I simply don't know the risk of shutting down the beam. I'm not willing to let this thing keep drilling into him. If somebody gets stabbed, you don't necessarily pull the knife out right away. It might do more harm than leaving it there. The captain is under attack. We must act. I'm inclined to agree. Doctor, monitor him closely. Mr. Data, prepare to disrupt the beam. We're going to try to... So I'm going to let it keep playing, and I'm going to talk over it for a bit, because this is a... I said earlier we needed the tension in the... Um, in the... Um, Oh, I don't want to go too far with this. Hang on. We needed the tension, the tension on the Picard side of it, um, but also on the Enterprise side. And the Enterprise, you just can't keep playing act after act after act of what the hell's happened to the captain. So um, I'm pretty sure I, I, I came up with the idea. I said, well, look, this, this probe really wants to be locked onto him in a, in a bad way, and, and it doesn't want to be unlocked onto him. And that's, that's where this came from. And it was really at a nice point in the episode where you're just dying for that tension, and as you know, it's going to get pretty bad in another moment. But um, um, in this scene here, coming up, you know, as a writer, you either draw on things, you, you draw on things you know, and then you turn them into something new. So here's a ceremony with a little baby boy, and they're gonna do a naming thing. And does anybody know what I, what that was? It was a bris. Um, we sort of did a shorthand version of the bris, but there were actually a lot of. For me, a lot of Jewish influences in this, um, um, as I said before, the mezuzah and this, and um, and you know nobody. It just seemed it seemed very natural, so it, it kind of worked to draw on what I knew to make this happen. But now, as you know, we're coming up to another big moment. Yeah, boy. 
This is your brother's ceremony. So, the heart attack. Um, the importance of this scene is kind of subtle, but it's the only time in the story where the Picard story and the Enterprise story kind of overlap. Otherwise, he's in his own world, they're in the here and now trying to fix it. This is a point where they overlap, and uh, I think it kind of evolved out of that, out of talking about... I mean, the first thing was we said, we just want something bad to happen to him, because if they're going to try and untether it. But... A lot of things that happened in this episode kind of came together just by luck, which is why it's such a good episode. Sometimes you get lucky. And this is one of the things. I don't think we ever really planned on saying this, but again, this is where the two sides overlap, and it's real important in watching the episode that you feel they're strung together, that they're on the same story instead of two different stories. Here fluctuations in the isocortex. Synaptic responses are failing. Begin full cardiac induction. No, you're not. I want to concentrate on my music. That's what I care about. Well, last year all you cared about was mathematics. The year before that, botany. But now through it all. So everybody knows this is Patrick Stewart's son, right? It's Patrick Stewart's son, Daniel. Patrick Stewart sent me a really nice letter, a handwritten letter after this episode. It said this was his favorite episode because he got to act with his son. I thought that was very touching. Um... I want to re leave time for questions, so I want to just hit a couple of these other points. Well, I'm going to jump ahead to... I want to hit a couple of points. observations, your findings. Our scientists reached those same conclusions two years ago. Well, what did you expect us to do? Make it public? Can you imagine the effect? But surely the technology must exist to save something of this world. Perhaps... Perhaps some people could be evacuated. Evacuated where? Our technology is limited. We're just beginning to launch small missiles. A collection of genetic samples, then. Something. Anything. You, you simply cannot let this civilization die. That's the part I wanted to get to. You cannot let this civilization die. And I think this is an overlooked part of the Picard story. Because this probe, as I said earlier, was looking for one man, good and true. But here you realize it was more than that. Look at the tenacity of this guy. The probe found somebody who would actually fight for these people, who wouldn't give up, who wouldn't just say, okay, I'm here in Catan, I'm going to sunbathe and weave iron. 
he was he was he was dogged in his determination, and and I I didn't realize it at the time for any of the drafts. But this is what that probe really looked for, and this is this is the real Picard, the heroic Picard that comes out in such a small way, just sticking up for this community. But it's the Picard we know, only he's not fighting off Klingons or anything else. He's just fighting for these people who he's become one with. That's what the probe saw in him, and that's what the probe wanted. So I think that was interesting. So I'm going to go to a part now where when I watch this episode, I kind of tear up a little at the very end, the flute playing over the end. When I tell people the episode, I choke up at a different part, and I'm going to get to that part, and it's really, I think it's, maybe the key emotional part that makes the whole thing work. So I'm going to go to that now. Enough. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. So they're saying you got to go out and watch the shot. And he doesn't want to, but they make him. Please come, Father. Didn't I hear anything about a launching? Oh. Did everyone know about this except me? I'll, uh, I'll be all right sitting here. You go off with the others. Hold on to my grats and watch the damn thing go up for all the good it'll do. What is it they're launching? You know about it, Father. You've already seen it. Seen it? What are you talking about? I haven't seen any missile. Yes, you have, old friend. Don't you remember? You died. You saw it just before you came here. We hoped our probe would encounter someone in the future. Someone who could be a teacher. Someone who could tell the others about us. Oh, it's me. Isn't it? Look at that look. That, that is just so fabulous. This is, to me, this is the real heart of the story here. When he realizes he spent 50, 60 years around on this planet, not knowing why he's there and everything, and now it all comes back to him, and now Picard's life has a purpose like it's never had before. And he's obviously a changed person from this, but I, when I tell the story, it's this moment, I think it's the way Patrick Stewart played it, it is really just so powerful that this guy realizes his life has meaning. I just, I just think that's a wonderful, a wonderful part in the show. Um, Jerry Taylor objected to what you're about to see. I'm the someone. I'm the one it finds. That's what this launching is. A probe that finds me in the future. Yes, my love. Elaine. She said, why do we have to bring back young Elaine? And I, 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 no, nobody else in the room knew what the problem was, but she said, well, why are we, what's so wrong with seeing Aline the way she was when she just left him? And um, 
I have to say everybody just kind of ignored that and went with this. I think you wanted to, I think the main thing is, you know, those prosthetics and the makeup are pretty difficult, and I really don't have a good answer for that, but I'm just telling you that's something that happened in the room, and, and she was overruled, and here's young Eileen. It, it's, of course, it's a little bit of that. It's bringing him back because they're both dead, and that's probably why we had to kill her off. So he wasn't thinking, but I got my wife here. I don't want this to end. So that's why we had to kill her off. And I think you're probably right. But it was an interesting discussion in the room. She, um, she really got a little upset over this. So let's just play it out, and I'm going to talk over the end so we can get to some questions. The rest of us have been gone a thousand years. If you remember what we were and how we lived, then we'll have found life again. So here's, here's another influence on me in writing this ending, and I was pleased to see when I went back and looked at the original writer's draft, it was exactly like they did with the flute playing over the end and all this. But I was, does anybody remember reading the book Shogun by James Clavell? That's the book where a guy similar to Picard went through a total change. He starts out looking at the Japanese people who have captured him and saying, what's with these nutjob Japanese? And they take baths all the time. And by the end of the book, he can't stand being around his fellow Englishmen because he's so changed. That was my influence to make Picard wake up from this thing and just, he's a totally different person than a half hour earlier when he got knocked out. And that's what I was going for here. And then, of course, I can't resist playing the ending. We have to go to the end. This is the end of my life. Jean-Luc Picard. Yep, there it is. And Riker knows he wants to be alone. Obviously. So the, the two lessons of the inner light, and the first comes from my own experience going through everything that I just told you about, just like Picard had to go through something, which is 
Oh, I don't want that to play. Um, I'm serious, I don't want to play. It, it, to me, it was about perseverance. I mean, it's funny, it kind of paralleled. Picard had to persevere and be dogged and never give up this idea, and, and that's how I felt <laughs> pitching the episode and going back in five times and, and, and sticking up for the flute and all those things. So I killed the joke earlier, but I was going to say, uh, don't give up, persevere, or as somebody wiser person once said. <laughs> And here's the second thing. Be careful what you wish for. Where was Picard happier? As Captain of the Enterprise? Well, sure, he likes that. That's where he's supposed to be. But, or did he like it in, in, in East Bumfuck, Catan, with his wife and kids and grandkids? He liked that, too. And we didn't set, set out to make that statement, but I think it's a natural outgrowth. Get off of there, Tim, Tim Allen. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> All right. It's a natural outgrowth of, of the story about the road not taken. And, and my draft has that, and I have to say to Michael Pillar's credit, it, it wasn't like he changed it to Picard saying like, oh, wow, I'm so happy to be back. I'm so off that planet. We, we didn't go there. And we got that Picard was sad in a way to be back. He liked the simple pleasures, and I think that's a good lesson for all of us. Thank you, and now I'll take questions. Now you spoke already. Anybody else? Yes, you. No, because I wasn't on staff, and I know Ron Moore has talked about it, that they had to deal with that, and that was their problem. Um, I actually had an idea for a sequel, and I think I heard on some other panel, somebody said that on, on Star Trek Next Generation, they, they had a rule they never wanted to do a sequel. So here's my sequel, and I'm going to tell you the idea, and then don't flatter me, but just by a show of applause, I want to know if people think I should write this as a graphic novel, because that's what I'm going to do. I haven't said it yet. All right. <laughs> so who are these people that Picard knows? I mean... I think they were the scientists on the planet Catan, all got together with a secret project, and they acted in the video that, through their advanced, super hyper-advanced technology, could do that in Picard's mind. And I think Aline was one of these scientists. They didn't go out and hire actors to do this, and they didn't, they, it, it didn't, wasn't all created in Picard's mind. They had people and some kind of interactive thing. I can't explain it. But I think she was one of those scientists, and I think they had a backup plan. I think... Plan A was, well, we're just starting to send up missiles and we have this mine technology, let's kind of do that. Plan B was, you know, we can probably send up a few people and put them in the suspended animation, but we can't tell everybody because everybody else on the planet is going to get mad. And I think she was one of the people that went up on suspended animation. And at some point next generation, they find that capsule. And on board comes Aline. And Picard is my wife of 60 years. And she says, who the hell are you? That's my sequel, and I call it The Outer Light. Should I write this? 
Um, thank you, I will. <laughs> uh, any other questions? It's a good question. Here's the interesting thing. Somebody else said to me today that there's a lot of people say, oh, I like that episode, but I didn't like that one. Some people like one, some people like, don't like another. And somebody said to me, nobody ever says I don't like the inner light. Here's what happened with the inner light. I said luck, and maybe it's just a confluence of things. I have written or rewritten probably 300 episodes of television. Rarely does it happen. When I watched the, the cut of this for the first time, I said, oh, my God, this is so much better than I imagined it. To which Michael Piller said, yeah, our production is better than you thought it was going to be. <laughs> which I thought was a little nasty, but I knew what I meant by that. I could not imagine it coming out this good, so my answer is no. There wasn't one thing about this where I thought, and, and that never happens. You always watch a show that you've written, even if I produced it or directed it, and you say, well, that's kind of cheesy. No, I, I just think this, something, the heavens were aligned on this one. That's all I can say. Way back there. Well, Ron Moore has said in, in print that they didn't realize what they were getting into with this episode. And nobody did, because if you think about it, you've heard the entire story of how this episode came to be. I saw the Fuji blimp. I thought it was a cool idea. It's sort of like it just picked up sort of its own weight and became its own thing. And nobody stopped to say, when we're because it's a really fast-moving train in TV, from the time Pillar says, okay, let's go do this, I probably had to turn it in draft in... in 10 days, and then they probably rewrote it in two days, and they shot it like a week later. I mean, that's how fast things go. So I don't think anybody said, whoa, let's put the brakes on this puppy. You know, what are we doing to this guy? There was no time to do it. And after the fact, Ron, to his credit, is the one who realized, we have to deal with this. This guy's a changed man. So I'm very proud to have inserted myself into their organization and really <laughs> fucked with one of their characters. <laughs> In a good way, in an affectionate way. No, but that reminds me of one of my favorite lines from Saturday Night Live, where Steve Martin says that the, our probe has been received, and they get back the answer, send more Chuck Berry. Yeah, I remember. Uh, but you know, they said they didn't have the technology to do much of anything. Why, why was the village that they portrayed such apparent low technology when it seems the entire story, all the story elements have worked much the same and the, the possible plot point there about the low technology yet the probe is far more advanced than anything the 23rd century of Earth has. That's right. Why couldn't it, why wasn't the village left kept low and not that same technological level? Two answers. The one easy answer is Joe Minoski said Ironweaver, and just everybody sort of dug that, Ironweaver, and, and it sort of symbolized kind of a low-tech, high-tech kind of thing. But the real answer is, if Picard's going to lead an alternate life, 
I have to be careful, I said, not an alternate life, but just a different life. Uh, uh, how is it going to seem different? You know, it's, if he's on some super high-tech world, it's, it's going to seem kooky. It's going to seem like that's the Earth we never show or, or the planets from, from the latter-day Star Wars episodes with people in flying cars. I mean, it's just going to look goofy. We had to put him into something that was lower tech for it to be like a very strange world, but we had to have this probe. If you think about it, it was a conundrum. You can't have both things at once, and we just ignored the conundrum. And, and like I said, emotions trump logic. And that's, that's another lesson. Okay, but this gentleman is correct. That's, if they go to that little village in Africa, they're not the same village that's making the probe. You see, the same village was doing both things. And so it is a little, it is a little nutty. I think you just have the buy-in. You have a buy-in. And we were talking in earlier panels about why movies, like the Star Trek movie, is, has to be, it can't be received in the same way. This is part of the reason why. In a TV series, you're going to have an episode every week. This one's done. You're on to the next one. You're, just like you said, we live in a world, not just a village. A TV series exists in its body of work, not just the one episode. So you'll forgive things like this. If this had been a movie, nobody would have let that go by. And on the TV series, we don't even care. Yeah, start at 26, 27.9. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> no, okay, I'll, I'll, I should take your question seriously. You mean, it was, they've been dead for a thousand years. No, in his head. He's only seeing it go up, and he's still in the dream. Wait, is that the question? What is, is there a Cayman? Let's hear the theory. Let's hear the theory. My theory is that they took a representative person and put his memories into the probe. And he seemed to be a guy who had a good combination of technological know-how, but, you know. No, like a real guy? Like Cayman is based on a real guy? No, sorry. No, I'll tell you why not, because they, remember, the probe is looking for one man, good and true. They didn't have that guy there, and they wanted to go up through the universe. This thing's been but traveling around. Here's, here's my thinking. They made the equivalent of a video, only it's a super high-tech video, with Aline and a couple other people, and they kind of put in, it's sort of like how a video game works, where it's accessing different parts at, at the time you need them. They made all that, and they had the technology to do the mind link thing. And uh, that is it. Cayman did not exist. Because um, if he does exist, then I can't write my sequel. So. That's a great question. You know, it's, it's one of those funny things when I... It, it's funny because you say I don't want to be a nitpicker, but it's one of those things you pick up on the 18th watch and you say, how does he know the name of this star system? Was it cataloged? I think we have to assume it was cataloged, even though it's destroyed. Um, how, how soon after the episode airing and everything did you realize, okay, this, this episode's huge and fans will be latched onto it and it's one of the top five episodes of the next generation? Because, I mean, the internet, of course, was 
not what it is then as it is today? Well, I guess this makes me kind of slow, but I did say this is my first convention I've attended to talk about it. <laughs> so I'd say the answer is 20 years. So funny story. I get the assignment to write this episode. By the way, if you have to go to another panel, I think we're at time, but I'll keep talking if you don't mind. So uh, uh, I get the assignment to write this, and I tell my agents at the time, who were a big agency that doesn't exist anymore, They're, they went the way of Fuji Film called ICM, and he says, what are you writing for a syndicated show for? He didn't talk that way, but that's the way I think of it in my head. <laughs> he said, what are you writing for a syndicated show for? So that tells you why it, it took a while. The episode played great, but it didn't kind of attain this status for, I don't know, you know better than I do, but I, I'm, I'd say it's at least five to ten years before it started being listed as the top five, the top this, the top that. Now, that being said, it won the Hugo Award, and it was the first time in 25 years the Hugo had been won by a TV episode, and the time behind, before that was for Harlan Ellison's episode, City on the Edge of Forever, from the original Star Trek. So, so people knew it was a good episode, an award-winning episode. But in terms of it really picking up that kind of esteem, I, I don't have a good answer. But uh, it's only in the last 10 years that I've been saying, wow, people really like this episode. <laughs> Yes. Um, uh, no and no. Uh, I was and am a huge Beatles fan. And when I went to name the episode, I just knew the inner light as the B-side of Lady Madonna. And I just thought it was a cool title that evoked this. Only later did I listen to the lyrics, which are from the 47th chapter of the uh, Tao Te Ching. And it's, without going out of my door, I can see the ways of heaven. And so, you know, uh, youth is wasted on the young. At the time, I really didn't get what the song was, um, but I knew enough to know that the title of it seemed evocative. So here's a little aside. So I thought, okay, since I told you I was trying to be a little subversive, I wrote The Inner Light, and the next one I did was uh, Starship Mine, but I wanted to call it Revolution. Why? Because I want to name every episode I wrote after a Beatles song. <laughs> And they said they had something similar to Revolution. Cut to a couple years later, I go on the staff of Law and & Order, and uh, the first episode I write as a staff writer was the story had already written by somebody else, and it was called Blue Bamboo. And Blue Bamboo is a Japanese term that I think means sexual harassment or something like that. So I write Blue Bamboo. Then I write my second episode about the soccer mom who is uh, arrested 25 years later, um, and I called it White Rabbit. And I write my third episode, and I call it Purple Heart. And I'm thinking about my next episode, and it was going to be, What Can Brown Do For You? <laughs> it was going to be about a UPS worker who finds something in his truck and gets murdered. And I wait, Morgan, stop, stop, stop. Do you realize you're concocting whole episode storylines around a color you want to use in the title? <laughs> and I put an end to it. So uh, I hope that answers your question. Uh, I can take a couple more. I am not a mega fan, and for anybody who was on the last panel I was at about the Star Trek movie, I'm a little embarrassed because I was in over my head because everybody in that room and all the panelists know so much about this stuff. I am what I would call the non-fan fan, which is I remember watching all the original Star Treks, and I watched Next Generation, 
as a really good TV show. I didn't watch it like fanatically, like it's some like it's a Star Trek thing. I just really liked the show. So um, I came to this show because uh, I always liked science fiction, and I thought I could bring them some good ideas. Uh, and I guess I was right, but not as like. And I think that helped. I think if if I had come in as like uh, a rabid fanatic fan, um, I don't think this would have worked. A couple more? Yes. Yeah. Maybe. I have, I have spoken about it for, for college classes. I frequently uh, like guest lecture at uh, you know, college writing classes, and a couple times I've spoken about this. I don't know if they appreciate it the way you do, but they appreciate it as a story about a writer. Really, writing is very, very difficult, and Hollywood can be really, really shitty to people. And so this is kind of a story about, I think it's a good example of that, that... Um, I didn't even have a great idea when I went. I thought I had a good idea. But I had to make it better to get on board, and then we all made it even better. Um, but um, that's, that's what I was doing. Can you give us a short uh, story on how you came to Starship Mine? Oh, Starship Mine. Well, yes, it's really short. I came and I said, die hard on the Enterprise. <laughs> and... And that's really what it was. And what I, it's funny because I know you're a fan of Starship Mine. Thank you. Starship Mine is not, I don't think it's on anybody's top ten list. It's one of my favorites because it goes hand in hand in the inner light as sort of what I call a change-up episode, which is it's not what you're seeing week in and week out. You're seeing Picard put in different circumstances. So if you think about it that way, they're, they're very similar. And in this one, in inner, inner light, you see Picard's just inner heroism, that 60 years on, he's not going to let these people be forgotten. Excuse me. <clears throat> that was bad, because that went down the wrong way. Hang on. <laughs> <coughs> but in Starship Mine... It was going a different way, but with the same kind of heroism. It was saying, this guy's captain of the ship. Where's that swagger? He keeps it under wraps because it's more realistic than a Captain Kirk. You know, Picard is, is an intellectual, and he's, he's a leader of men. But what happens if he's alone and has to fight bad guys? I wanted to see him fighting bad guys. And by the way, if you watch early Law and Orders, I was on it when, in the original Law and Order. If you see a rerun of an episode with, with the cops actually running and pulling out their gun, I probably wrote it. Because I just like that kind of stuff. I like it's called run and jump. And I thought, why aren't they doing more fisticuffs in action? So I, th I think both these episodes together are sort of like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you from the last question. But I think both these episodes together are sort of my, as a non-fan, my wish to make Star Trek into the kind of shows I liked. And I was lucky to have gotten to do it. Yeah. yeah, yes, I mean, in the original Star Trek, they didn't even do the prosthetics. 
That was a conceit of next generation to show that why should people look alike. But come on, you should land on a planet where the, where the dolphins are the rulers and another planet where the, the form of life is some kind of bacterium. And then we don't do it. It's a conceit of the show that everybody's humanoid. So, no, I think they look the way they really look. But that's a really good point because I never thought about this. The probe was not just looking for one man good and true and a guy who's going to fight for him. It was looking for a humanoid person who could understand their memories. Thank you. I'm going to add that to my next talk. <laughs> Who did the what belong to? The flute. Next question. Uh, I think they probably, one of the scientists probably did play the flute, but I needed the flute, and so they put that in. They were smart enough to give him something, because think about it, the flute is in the probe, is going to be given to him at the end. They knew he would learn to play it, so it's a memento. They set it up as a memento. I don't think anybody needed to play it. I'll keep, do you want me to take a couple more questions? I'm, I'm okay if you are. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm grateful to get to see this again because it has been a while, but at the end, Art has the flute in his hand. He is really grasping that sucker. Was that you, the director, or Patrick Stewart who did that? I, I think a lot of that was Patrick. I was not on set, so I couldn't say. So I'm going to tell you what it says in my draft, okay? Because I don't even know. It was just symbolic of, of how much you like that light. I think that's his acting. Picard's in his loungewear, <laughs> opening the aluminum canister. It's his Catan flute. He looks at it, feels its rough, familiar texture. So that's what I wrote, and that's how he interpreted it. Okay, one more question. Right. Right. I do know him. I do know him, but we never talked about that. But I'll add something else, which I didn't say during this, but uh, there's a Talmudic saying that says, if you kill one person, it's like killing an entire civilization. And that's kind of what, a, what I... That's not the idea for this, but that's when I was inserting like stuff that I knew. There's actually a scene that was shot with data saying, on the probe, they've translated the runes on the probe, and it says in each of us lives an entire civilization. That scene was shot and didn't make it in the finished thing. So that's the connection on there. So to answer the Leonard question, um, I moved to a house in Los Angeles about 17 years ago, and across the street from that house is the house where Leonard and Sandy Nimoy had raised their two kids, and they had divorced, but his, his ex-wife lived there with their kids, and I became really good friends with Leonard's son, Adam. So every time I see Leonard, I'm going to try and see him tomorrow, I, I tell him that I'm good friends with Adam, and he's very grateful to hear that, because I hired Adam to uh, direct some episodes of TV for me, and he was a really good director. So Leonard's always very happy to hear that. So that's my connection with Leonard. I do know Leonard brought up some of the Jewish stuff, too, but we never discussed it. Oh, I said one last question. That's it. Thank you very much. Thanks. I am Gnomewise. I am Gonora. I am Iolite. I am Dexa. I am Grail. And I am Versus You. I am Versus You. And I'm Versus You. I am Versus You. And I'm Versus You. Casually Hardcore. Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. GMT. 
only on vtwproductions.com. <laughs>